When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another special guest for you guys, Nate Lawfer. Nate is a uh, a good friend of mine. He is a peer of mine, technically, because we're the same age, but Nate is up here and I'm down here, and, and he continues to help me think through my own philosophy and the implications for my own theology. And so uh, every now and then, God God throws a philosopher friend my way uh, to just sharpen my thought and help me. So I'm excited to bring him to the rest of you guys and have him start poking someone else besides me. Uh, Nate got his BA in philosophy from Biola, his MA in philosophy from Western Michigan, and he's currently working on a PhD from Northwestern in epistemology. Uh, he also is interested in philosophy of science, philosophy of religion, and uh, a couple other things like that. But he is getting his uh, PhD in uh in epistemology, in an area which I don't even know enough to tell you. So I'll let Nate introduce that to you. So without further ado, Nate, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, good to be here. Can you uh, just just give us an overview of your project? Uh, like, yeah, what is it? Yeah, that's a good question that I need to answer too, um, just for myself. But mm-hmm. um, so I'm at the early stage dissertation and... Um, my project is kind of at the intersection of traditional epistemology and formal epistemology. Mm-hmm. Um, at least a certain part of it is. Um, and I try to relate it to some issues in what's called social epistemology. Mm-hmm. Now, none of those terms might be meaningful at all to some of your listeners, so I should mm-hmm. say something. Epistemology, theory of knowledge, you're mm-hmm. investigating philosophical concepts like rationality, justification, knowledge. You're thinking about questions like, well... Um, is belief justified in this or that circumstance? What would be the explanation for why it is or isn't? That was, that's like the kind of space you're working in. Yeah. And when I say formal epistemology, I'm just talking about an approach to those questions that invokes the tools of logic and often probability theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to apply those tools to some questions that have been asked traditionally about these concepts in epistemology. Um, like what is knowledge? What are the conditions under which a belief is a justified belief? Um, and I think that some issues in what's called social epistemology are um, kind of related to these traditional questions, but they're subtly different. They have kind of a real world flavor, mm-hmm. right? They're asking questions about um, basically how, how these questions should be informed by our positioning with respect to other people. Yeah. Um, and I 
I'm kind of interested in working like in between those spheres. And my project currently is centering on that. And I can say a little bit more about what that project looks like, but um, that hopefully gives you a little bit, a little bit of a flavor of what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's so interesting because in my mind, if I'm understanding you right, you are um, you're doing some some really good work in the theoretical realm, um, not just to stay there and stay in Ivory Tower, but because it has implications for our social life. Uh, it has implications. So uh, it, that's just super interesting to me because that's the kind of stuff that gets me going. That this world is more complex than we just think, though uh, we some of our intuitions are uh, are true. It just takes a lot to to kind of suss those out. And so I wonder if you could just go over um, the the phone stealing case. Is that is that something you could tell us about? The phone stealing. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh um, yeah, good. So um, I'll just say a little bit about what this case is designed to show. Yeah. So sure. um, you might have thought that um, beliefs are justified, provided that they're sufficiently probable, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sufficiently probable on your evidence. And um, this view seems like it's challengeable by a range of cases, but one case that's particularly striking is, um, and it's a class of cases, actually, and these are cases having to do with what you might call purely statistical evidence. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the phone case is a case where it's, it's, it's highly idealized, but yeah. imagine that you're in a room and... There are only two people in the room, a guy and a girl, and um, you don't know anything about these individuals, but you know one of them stole the phone. Um, And you also have the statistical data, um, namely that men are 100 times more likely to steal phones than women or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if we're we're just being – if we're being hyper-idealized, right, this is literally all you know, then it seems like the the probability on your evidence is such that – the guy probably stole the phone right and if you don't like the statistic i gave you you don't think a hundred times more likely is sufficient for justified belief just ratchet up the amount here yeah um you you should feel uncomfortable thinking that just on that basis you can conclude and come to believe that all the guy stole the phone Mm -hmm. um to bolster that judgment i mean imagine how inappropriate it might be to go around saying like he stole the phone taking measures uh, on the assumption that the person stole the phone, like maybe like calling the police or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, putting on an ad saying phone yeah. stealer with his picture. Yeah, right. <laughs> it just seems like, it just seems like you got really strong evidence, statistical evidence for the proposition that the guy in question stole the phone, but mm-hmm. intuitively at least your belief is not justified. At least that's what some want to say. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the phone case. I don't know what else you wanted me to say about that, but that, that is the case. Well, I, I just, I like that because people steal phones, man. And we have this, this, this happens in everyday life. And in order for us to think through whether you are justified in that belief and whether uh, maybe you're justified in the belief, but you're not justified in stating that belief, you know, there might be a, yeah. a distinction between your actions, like, like speaking out loud or thinking, and maybe you can think it, but you can't, all that kind of stuff gets me so excited because that's, it's real life. And these are real questions that we can think through, but in order to really get to the meat of it and, and to, to get clear on it, we have to do a lot of work. You have to write a dissertation on it, which is just, I love that. 
Yeah. And, you know, I should just say real quick that um, that, that case is not original to me. I'm, I'm, it's actually a case from a philosopher named Laura Bushak, um, mm. who's done some really interesting work on this. Yeah. Um, my own position, um, just since you kind of gestured at it with some, something you were saying a second ago, is that uh, we shouldn't let go of the judgment that your belief in this case is justified. Mm-hmm. Um, what, instead, what we should say is something about the propriety of doing certain things, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting, right? Because you, then you would have a case where you're justified in believing something, but it might be inappropriate to act on that belief in certain ways. Yeah. And it might be epistemically inappropriate, right? It's not just mm-hmm. morally inappropriate or not just imprudent or something like that. I want to say, no, we actually still have a purely intellectual criticism of a certain kind, but it doesn't target the belief. It targets the action. Mm-hmm. Um, now this raises a whole bunch of interesting questions that I think just are part of the dissertation, right? People are really concerned about um, things like profiling and rightly yeah. so. And you might worry that the kind of view I'm going for here uh, might give license to that kind of thing. And um, I, I think that that's kind of where a lot of the fun in the dissertation is. It's how do you respect what you might call a traditional verdict, your belief is justified, mm-hmm. but um, you don't have some of these unseemly consequences for um, what you do with that belief. Yeah. Again, man, that's practical. That's good. That like that, that touches on, you know, issues of justice and, and action and belief and profiling. And that's why it's just, it's sweet because you can take this theoretical uh, necessary, you know, uh, process of thinking through this and then apply it to uh, everyday life situations, which is just sweet for me. So, uh, one thing that, that there's a lot of things that are different between us just in, in temperament and how we go about things. You love stats. You, uh, love Bayesian reasoning. You love that kind of stuff. And I love like the shortcut, like let's go for necessary conditions and not that you don't, but, uh, we're, we're just different in that sense. And I think, uh, part of that plays out in what you consider yourself. So, uh, for, for our listeners, I've had on externalists, uh, mostly people who follow Alvin Plantinga. And uh, believe that warrant uh, is the terminology we should be using. And uh, well, I'll let Nate characterize that because I'll botch it. But there's uh, exist- there's externalists and internalists in, in epistemology. There are evidentialists. There are proper functionalists. There are uh, yeah. some uh, presuppositionalists, though that it's not a, a ton of us in philosophy. Um, Nate, can you just explain what you mean when you call yourself an internalist and when you call yourself an evidentialist? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'll just back up a, a step, though, and say something about um, a concept that I've been um, uh, deploying throughout this conversation, uh, justification. I should just say a little mm. bit about what I mean by that, because that actually sure. might help me answer some of the other questions you're asking. Yeah. So um, when we talk about a belief being epistemically justified, I think we're thinking roughly of what that feature that distinguishes a merely true belief from knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who, for your listeners who do a little bit of epistemology, they might already see a problem with this way of characterizing it, but I think it's a rough way to go and it's okay for our purposes. Yeah. So if I just happened to believe something that was true, right? I just, I believe there are eight planets in the solar system, but I believed it um, just because I thought it sounded like a cool idea or something like that. Intuitively, that's, I don't know that there are eight planets in the solar system. I just happen to like the belief and the belief happened to be true. Yeah. Um, in order for that to be a case of knowledge, I would need to have good reasons for the belief, right? Like maybe mm. some experts told me how many planets are in the solar system. Um, maybe I read it in a book. Um, 
I need something like that to know, right? So that 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 having good reasons, I, that's what I think distinguishes the merely true belief from knowledge. Again, kind of a some listeners will see what's wrong with that characterization, but it's good for our purposes. Yeah. Now, um, now we can talk about what um, what the internalism externalism debate yeah. is. Well, real um, quick, so if, since you brought us back, let's go back one step further. So just. This, this classical understanding or classical analysis of knowledge is that uh, knowledge is a belief. Uh, something You can't have knowledge if you don't have – well, I know this is a thing too. Some people say you can have knowledge without belief. But it, it, the traditional understanding is that in order to have knowledge, you have to have a belief. It has to yeah. be a true belief and it has to be justified. And that justification is what Nate was talking about with reasons. Uh, you can't just have a merely true belief uh, – that, you know, I picked out a ping pong ball and then there's an eight on it. So then I go, oh, well, maybe there's eight planets. I'm just going to go with that because it's ping pong. That's not really a good reason. You're not that's justified, right. even if it's a true belief. So um, so then that's been historically uh, what people have, have thought since, you know, uh, Plato. And then uh, this guy, Edmund Gettier, who we've talked about in the podcast, came along and destroyed everyone's world with uh, with a three page paper that said is justified true belief knowledge, I think. And then. Uh, now here we are today talking about justification. So Nate, take us away again. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, that, that's good to know that some of your listeners like talked to, or heard about Gettier. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I won't rehash that then. Um, yeah. Uh, you you tradition- can you can rehash it if you want. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. I, I'm just worried we're going to get far afield. But but yeah, basically sure. basically, uh, Parker, you're exactly right. Um, the traditional analysis of knowledge is that knowledge is justified true belief. Mm-hmm. And um, but what is known are propositions, right? So the proposition that there are eight planets, the proposition that it's raining, you know, mm-hmm. the proposition that today is an election day. Um, the, that, that's, that's the kind of knowledge that's at issue here. And so mm-hmm. the idea, and so just, let's just refer to an arbitrary proposition with the letter P. So knowledge yep. that P. Um, the idea is that knowing that P um, can be analyzed as ha- having a justified true belief that P. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the internalism externalism debate um, usually centers around um, this feature of justification. And the debate, I think, can be characterized in a few different ways depending on how nitpicky somebody wants to be. But um, one way to think about it, which I think makes the dispute kind of intuitive is whether or not the things that make your belief justified need to be cognitively accessible. Um, so I talked earlier about having good reasons for the belief that there are eight planets in the solar system. Um, and if you're an internalist, then you think that these are reasons that need to be cognitively accessible. You need mm-hmm. to be able to, in some sense, be able to um, uh, tell what your reasons are. Um, yeah. The externalist says, no, that's actually not necessary. Um, you can be justified in believing something, even though you can't really tell what your reasons are. Yeah. Um, now, I, like, as before, I, I'm being somewhat rough and crude with my characterization of this. And some people might not, uh, some people who are nitpicky might think, oh, no, I would fine tune the way he said this <laughs> or that thing. But I yeah. think this is a really useful way to think about it. Um, it's just whether or not there's cognitive access to the reasons. Um, so when you say cognitive access, uh, I don't want to be nitpicky, but uh, do you mean knowing why you know it or or is it is it more broad than that yeah i might no, yeah saying, knowing your reasons were, for yeah sorry yeah saying saying knowing why might kind of in some way presuppose that um 
you need to know like the explanation for why you believe or something like that. And I don't think that that's necessarily what a reason has to be is an explanation for why you believe. Okay. Um, and often it isn't. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and I don't want to say anything as strong as you need to um, know what your reasons are in order to be justified in believing the things that the reasons are reasons for. Um, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to say that. Cause I think that sounds a little bit too strong. Yeah. Um, especially since that would require that you have, um, a second belief for every bit of knowledge that you have. Right. Right. Um, and that might sound a little bit demanding and maybe then you're, there's a, arguably you're on the hook for some kind of vicious regressive beliefs. Um, because you have to keep having reasons and reasons and reasons. Yeah. You would keep having this kind of meta level, like knowing your belief and, I think that we want to steer clear from a requirement like that. If you want me to be a little bit more precise, you want to just like pin me down and I have to (laughs) be clear. I would say something like um, in order to be justified in believing that P you have to have justification to believe that your belief is justified. Um, Mm -hmm. Having justification isn't the same thing as justifiably believing. And so the idea mm-hmm. is that you have available to you a meta level justification. And yes, this does put you on the infinite like layers of justification, but I actually don't think that that's a vicious, re- a vicious and uh, regressive mm-hmm. any kind because Nate, you that, don't, you don't actually have to believe any, yeah. at each level. So. Okay. So that's interesting. I w- that was, I was going to follow up with this, um, this conversation of uh, like proper, basicality and basic beliefs and stuff so in your view um are you are, would you consider yourself a, a foundationalist or does does your uh biting the bullet on the infinite regress um like save you from that position if that's something you want to be saved from i guess but uh, how do you distinguish that i don't think i'm biting any bullets but i mean again that can be a whole mm-hmm. other discussion um yeah because I want I want to get to like because you, you you didn't just ask about the internalism externalism debate so I want to make sure I'm like addressing some other questions but yeah. but yeah just real just on the foundationalism question so the I, foundationalism for those who might not know um, the idea is that um, for every belief that you have um, concerning its justification either it's justified inferentially from mm-hmm. other beliefs or it's non inferentially justified and typically these not and, and on the foundationalist view the non inferential uh, inferentially justified beliefs are the foundational beliefs yeah. from which um, all of the other beliefs that you have that are inferentially justified um, acquire their justification. Yeah. I always think of like gra- it's ground level. And then from those basic beliefs uh, at the ground level, you can build up your skyscrapers. Uh, your, yeah. That's, that's your a really helpful. Yeah, up. that's right. It's a great, it's, it's a great analogy. Um, I, I, like every analogy it's imperfect in some ways, but it's, right. but it's pretty good. Um, so your question, am I a foundationalist? Yes, I am. And I don't think that the kind of regress that we were just talking about is going to be relevant to that because I'm not okay. saying that the justification that you have to believe that your belief is justified. It's kind of a mouthful. Yeah. I'm not saying that that right there is what justifies the first order belief. I'm not saying okay. that. Okay. I'm just saying that if you're an internist, then of the kind at least I am, you're just going to say whenever your belief is justified, you also have available to you a justification ah. to believe that that belief is justified. Yeah. Now I'm not, but I'm not claiming that that particular justification is somehow justifying the first order belief. Okay. Um, 
that's 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 the idea. Yeah. And okay. so you still that, have foundationally justified beliefs. That's really helpful. So uh, so the listeners who have listened to other podcasts uh, episodes, uh, you will know that we when, when we discuss Alvin Planninga, he uh, broadened out the the foundation. So uh, he he broadened it by saying there's a lot more things that can be properly basic besides. Uh, what Descartes thought was properly basic, which was, you know, that basically the, basically the uh, cogito, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. So, um, Nate, do you, do you um, consider yourself, I know it's a tough topic and it doesn't have to do with your dissertation, but I just <laughs> want to chase it down. Uh, would you fall in line more with the Plantingian uh, moderate foundationalism or more in line with the classical somewhere in between yeah, it's a good question. It is interesting that we're thinking about Planinga as a kind of foundationalist, though, because I, I, I don't read him as even wanting much to do with that whole ideology. Hmm. Um, but um, I guess there might be a way of thinking him that way. Like, maybe he's trivially a foundationalist for the simple reason that there are non-inferentially justified beliefs and there are inferentially justified beliefs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, to, to your question about whether I'm, I'm a Plantingan I guess I would say that I, I used to find that whole outlook attractive, but I, I no longer do. Yeah. Um, I am, I am a foundationalist um, that is probably stronger than what's called moderate foundationalism. But I don't mm-hmm. know if I go all the way of saying that the foundational beliefs have to be um, incorrigible or yeah. indubitable or something like that. I, okay. I actually don't feel like I have a good handle on what the conditions are under which a belief is foundationally justified um, or non-inferentially justified. Yeah. I have it in mind that they need to be certain, epistemically certain, but okay. then there's a whole headache trying to figure out what the conditions are for epistemic certainty. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, and so that that's really helpful because it brings us to um, the, the question of evidentialism in epistemology. So uh, in, in jumping off of the, the Plantingian view that you can have these, these properly basic beliefs um, that uh, aren't grounded in other beliefs. So you can believe in God that's properly, properly basic, even if you don't have uh, positive arguments for believing in God. Um, so you would disagree with that, right? Because you're, you're, you're an evidentialist concerning uh, epistemology and apologetics for those uh, interested in apologetics, though those two don't have to go hand in hand. You can be mm-hmm. an evidentialist epistemologist and a classical or mix and match however you want. Um, as long as it's consistent, but yeah. So Nate, tell us about evidentialism. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in, in epistemology, right. Um, Please, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I think the standard, um, statement of evidentialism is that a belief is justified if and only if it's supported by your total evidence or sometimes the language of fit is employed. So hmm. like, uh, if it fits your total evidence, okay. um, and it's not, it, it's not limited to talk of belief. Maybe degrees of belief are also um, of interest for an evidentialist thesis. But um, that's, that's, that's the idea. Um, it, it might, it, it, I feel like I'm just saying the same. I keep saying that there are like other nuances and that this is yeah. rough and that one yeah, might yeah, want yeah. to find too. And, and again, the same thing applies here, but roughly that is what the thesis is. A belief is justified just in case it's supported by your total evidence. Yeah, no, that's helpful. No. Well, in in uh, for the listeners, you can tell uh, Nate is uh, he's a philosophy teacher as well, so he's teaching undergrads and and <laughs> he's deep in it. So all these qualifications, it's really helpful. I've actually learned a lot from him in, in doing that and saying, look, this is not 
everything. If we want to have a full conversation on this, it's going to take two hours. But just for the sake of our conversation, here's what I'm saying. Yeah, and 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 it might even come across as like patronizing, which I don't intend for it to. I'm in some ways, I'm just trying to cover my butt because right. some people totally. who listen might be might be like, "Oh, that's not right." Totally. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, now now the relevance of this for religious epistemology because mm-hmm. you were asking about what I think about um, the belief that God exists. Yeah. I mean, I I think about the belief that God exists um, in the way I think about any proposition. Um, Either it's the kind of thing that could be inferentially justified or it could be the kind of thing that's not inferentially justified. Mm. It's not as though there's some like special class of propositions such that like the rules don't apply in that way. Um, And like the religiously interesting ones or theologically interesting ones are that class or something like that. Right. 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 Um, So um, then the question is just, is the, is the claim that God exists plausibly something you can know non-inferentially? And and I just don't think that is very plausibly something you could know non-inferentially. I think that uh, as a descriptive matter probably is mediated by inference for a lot of people, contrary to what a lot of people who follow planning a think, they say things like, I just find myself having this belief. I, I, I kind of think that's really oversimplifying. Hmm. um the nature of belief formation (laughs) um but um and and as a normative matter i just don't think it could be the kind of thing that you could just find yourself believing and then you um and then then you're justified in believing it um which is why people who follow planning i tell some kind of story about the faculty producing um theistic belief yeah but i don't tend to go that way i tend to think no um the same standards apply to this as to any proposition and it just intuitively is not something you can know non-inferentially and so then whatever story you tell about inferentially justified beliefs is the story you're going to tell about um the belief that god exists yeah yeah that's that's helpful so Man, we didn't talk about doing this, so uh, we can cut it if if it's not good. But um, <laughs> it's fine. So, whatever, whatever well, you know, whatever you want to talk about. I'm thinking Romans one. So uh, eventually, for the listeners, we're going to get to disagreement, which is what I'm probably going to title this. I, I love disagreement. And we're uh, disagreeing right now. That's right. Yeah. That's what I, at least I feel like we're about to disagree. So. Maybe, maybe. I'm just curious uh, on your on your take there uh, about so um, not not thinking that that uh, belief in God can be something that is uh, non inferentially believed or, or justified. Um, what what do you make of Romans one um, and the knowledge of God and you know God holding people accountable as if they did have knowledge or as if they ought to have knowledge? I just had a philosopher on who said um, he was he was hardcore uh, Presbyterian. It's going to be coming out soon. Uh, great great dude. So in in my camp, I'm thinking that people are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness uh, today, whereas other people will read Romans one and say. Uh, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, our ancestors maybe. And then uh, we don't, we aren't born with the census divinitatis. We're not born with uh, knowledge of God, but we're still held accountable because we should understand God from, uh, from his creation. We ought to have. So there's at least two views. One is that we do have direct awareness uh, of God from creation and from being made in his image. The other view is that we've lost it historically but we ought to have it, and so we're still held accountable for it. Uh, in in your view, that uh, God, knowledge of God is not something that uh, is can be non-inferentially uh, have had or, or justified. What what do you make of of the uh, of Romans one and knowledge of God? People being held accountable for it. Not not trying to 
uh, I'm just really genuinely curious on how you're you're making sense of that. Yeah, it's a good question, <clears throat> especially if you're um, both an evidentialist and a Christian, right? Um, mm-hmm. A Christian with a high right. view of scripture. Um, I, I, I want to real quick just back up on something because I keep saying inferentially justified, and that might give the impression very naturally that I'm suggesting that you need to go through a process of inferring right. or something right. like that. Yeah. And I don't mean to over-intellectualize knowledge or justify belief. Um, I guess the yeah. idea is something like a belief is inferentially justified in my sense as I'm talking about it, just in case its justification is somehow like dependent upon another set of propositions that you believe. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that's the idea. Um, yeah. So then, okay, to, to your question about Romans 1, um, you said – you pointed out how the text um, suggests that, and actually says, not just suggests, that what can be known about God is um, evident in what's made. Yeah. Um, I think that right there is just a clear sign that, um, well, I mean, what it says, right? Like, you know, via some information, namely mm-hmm. the creation, right? Yeah. Later on in Romans, he talks about uh, the law written on your heart. It yeah. seems like you can make some inferences from facts about that. Um, mm. that are theologically interesting. Uh, so so I think that what it actually says in Romans 1 and the book of Romans is right in line to the kind of position I'm describing. Yeah. But I, I also just want to add that I don't know that you can get much mileage out of texts like these for this particular philosophical dispute. I think the mileage mm. is actually kind of limited. So, mm. um, but, but if the question is, does this count against the view? I just want to say unequivocally, no, it does not. I don't think yeah. it does. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to draw that out. Cause I, I knew you had thought through this and, uh, and I just preempting anyone who's listening saying, well, then yeah, you're over intellectualizing or you're saying that we can't have knowledge. Of-. No, he, he's not actually doing that. And he, and he's thought through. Um, and so, yeah, that, that that's helpful, dude. I, I appreciate you. Yeah, your, your, and I, I, your, I definitely wouldn't want anyone coming away thinking, "Well, wow, he's a skeptic. He thinks the standards are so right, high." Right. Because I'm not a skeptic, right? I mean, yeah. I actually think we know a lot of things. I think we know yeah. a lot of. I think we have a lot of mundane knowledge. Um, yeah. I just think that sometimes we're not really sensitive to how much justification we have. Mm. And yeah. and that's not and that's not to be an externalist. It's just to say something about um, the reasons we have available to us that are accessible. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. So let's let's get into the disagreement literature. Uh, for those watching on YouTube, our background you can't totally see, but uh, enough of you will be able to make it out that it's the uh, it's the lady yelling at the cat meme. Uh, they are uh, disagreeing. So uh, yeah, I was wondering I, what that was. <laughs> yeah. So I want to get into uh, disagreement literature because it's another thing that happens every day in our life, um, which has all these philosophical implications when you start digging at it which I think most things do. And that's why I love philosophy. But so um, I wanted to start by, by bringing up uh, Richard Feldman. He's a uh, epistemologist, a really famous one, really good epistemologist. And he wrote this essay called reasonable religious disagreements uh, in which he recounted this time when he was teaching undergrads and they, they got to uh, religious disagreements and he had a bunch of different types of, of religious believers or non-believers in his class. And they all wanted to be friendly. They all wanted to be nice and say, hey, look, reasonable people can can disagree. And so then he, he analyzes it and says, well, I'm not so sure that a peer can disagree with another peer and still think that they're reasonable if they've shared all their evidence with each other and uh, given each other their reasons. Then 
either they have to withhold judgment or think that uh, their peer is is not actually their peer and maybe they have more knowledge than them or justification. So, uh, Nate, can you can you I've just briefly kind of touched on it. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, disagreement? Yeah. Um, so the Feldman piece is a little dated by now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is one of the first of several articles <clears throat> that came out in like the early to mid two thousands. Um, that really helped the discussion on disagreement and epistemology really take off. Um, I think, um, and I'm I'm going off memory here, um, that the interest in disagreement was kind of um, growing at first out of discussions and. In, in philosophy of religion, mm. but then it really took on a life of its own in like the mid to mid to uh, early two thousands. Um, in, in contemporary epistemology, with articles by people like Thomas Kelly and you just mentioned Richard Feldman. Um, Feldman wrote this piece around that time, um, a pretty accessible piece as far as epistemology papers go, um, called "Reasonable Religious Disagreement," where he applies his own views on disagreement to um, to the significance of disagreement about religious matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Feldman endorses a view on which when you disagree with an epistemic peer about something, then, uh, and you know that, you, that this is a peer that you're disagreeing with, then you ought to suspend judgment about um, the, the proposition that you initially believed. And he applies that to the case of religious disagreement and he dramatizes the whole uh, discussion by talking about his own class. And he uh, basically says, well, you know what, for all these people who were steadfast in their beliefs in this world religions class I taught, um, they probably shouldn't have been at the end or something like that. I forget yeah. exactly what he said. It's been a while since I've read it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's actually really interesting when that paper shows up, right? It shows up in a, in a collection of papers called philosophers without God, I think. Oh yeah. And there's a whole lot of championing, of a secular life and atheism on the part of all the other authors. And then Feldman comes along and he's just like, you know, we're probably all unreasonable. <laughs> it's kind of, a, it's kind of a funny contribution. Um, and, and unreasonable in light of the fact that we, we just disagree with. So like we, we obviously disagree with epistemic peers about matters of religion. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that. that. That's so helpful. So you, um, you tossed this in my lap like last last semester, and I'd I'd heard of disagreement literature here and there, and how it's like an up and coming thing, which is so funny uh, because in my circles, like it's an up and coming thing, and now you look and it's dated. They've been at it for a while, you know. So we just yeah, it's not really up and coming anymore. Contemporary <laughs> yeah, epistemology, like right. that discussion has taken new turns, and it's actually really um, inspired a lot in other discussions that yeah. are kind of downstream. Well, in it's so it's so interesting to me because it's it's kind of hard to actually think through. I think Feldman does such a good job in, in at least in his essay of saying, look, I, I think uh, I have I have some of the uh, conditions here uh, or, or his definitions. He talks about epistemic peers and an epistemic peer is a thinker, uh, thinkers who are roughly equal with respect to intelligence, reasoning powers and background information. So that's what a peer yeah. is epistemically. You're, you're on the same level. And then uh, these peers share their evidence with each other. These interlocutors, they have a uh, full discussion on the topic that they disagree over, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, whatever. Uh, and they share all the re- relevant information that they have with each other. And then uh, there's reasonableness. Reasonableness is uh, a belief is reasonable only when it has adequate evidential support. 
Yeah. And then um, this is the one that, that kind of gets me that I'm not sure about is the uniqueness thesis that a body of evidence justifies at, at most one proposition out of a competing set. And so if you have these kind of definitions in place, then you show up and you're disagreeing with your peer who you think is your epistemic peer. You're both intellectually in the same level. You both share your evidence for each other uh, with each other for your belief, which are contrary to each other. And you're both being, you both think that the other one is reasonable, but then mm -hmm. you think that the evidence can only support one of your views. And so it's like, well, then one of us is not reasonable because yeah. we have, ev or we're not epistemic peers. And then you kind of feel bad. Like I must be smarter. <laughs> than if, if I hold on to my position, I'm, I must be smarter than you. But yeah. It's like, well, why, why are you prioritizing your view? Just because it's yours. It's, just because it's <laughs> yeah. yours. Yeah. And so it's it's tricky, man. Uh, you you would propose that I write about this in my uh, religious epistemology class, and I didn't because it's so tr it's so tricky. I didn't yeah. I couldn't think of like a really good answer for it, except to say the mean thing and say like, if I disagree with someone over Christianity, I have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, and so maybe we're not uh, epistemic peers, even though they're smart too, you know, or they're smarter than I am, whatever it is. And it's just a really tough thing to. Um, to think through. I, I, and I like it because people are disagreeing on, on Facebook right now as we are recording yeah. and, and they're thinking that other people are reasonable sometimes, you know, but if you do think that someone who voted for the other candidate is reasonable and yet you can still be reasonable and disagree, then Feldman's coming for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um... What do you make of that? Yeah. What do you make of, I know uh, it. So again, Nate is not uh, doing his dissertation on this. I've asked him to speak on this and it's been uh, a while. So he's not claiming to be an authority, but he, he's thought through some epistemology stuff and can kind of shed some light for us. Yeah. So I think you rightly characterize the problem really. Um, so just to, re to rehash some of it, um, yeah. a disagreement with an epistemic peer. What is that? Well, it's a disagreement with somebody over an issue um, or a proposition where you know that the other person um, is just as competent as you at mm -hmm. assessing the, the relevant evidence, right? Yeah. Um, so they're cognitive equals. Call that the cognitive equality condition. Um, but you're also evidential equals, and you know that, right? So you have all the same relevant evidence. Mm -hmm. um, so you're also evidential equals. So you're both cognitive equals and you're evidential equals and you know it, and yet you disagree. Um, there's this pressure to say, well, in that situation, it might be like special pleading or something to just, or, or totally arbitrary to just be like, well, because it's my, because I believe this, um, I must be right. And he must be wrong. Right. We can't both be right. Right. I mean, I believe that P he, he believes that not P. Um, it can't be both that P and not P. So right. one of us must be right. One of us must be wrong. And it just seems awfully convenient for me to be like, well, clearly I got it right. Um, yeah. So, um, and if that, and, and, and here's the thing, if, if you're, if you want to draw a moral from that, namely that in such cases, you ought to actually just suspend judgment or significantly revise your belief. Um, there's this worry, I think, that some people have that mm. while this moral will really generalize because we have disagreements with peers all the time. Yeah. Um, and it, you, you highlighted one particular frustrating consequence, namely that like if you're if you're steadfast in these cases, right? Mm -hmm. So you just keep holding on to your belief. 
then you kind of look like a dogmatist and and it's it's not it's not intellectually virtuous it, it yeah. just seems kind of messed up in some ways i, I actually want to highlight um another problem that i think is kind of on the flip side of this um if epistemic peer disagreement is so widespread there's the concern that you're going to be spineless <laughs> you're mm. you're just going to be you're just going to be revising your belief all the time you're going to have a really unstable belief set um maybe you won't really end up believing much of anything um yeah. So there's a concern that it, it overgeneralizes to the point where we're skeptics. Um, so um, there's there's a fine line, I think, that you want to walk between the more skeptical impulse here and the more dogmatist impulse here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's helpful. So, uh, yeah, it's it's tough. So um, there's two two relevant uh, scenarios that that are interesting, too. So one is. Like if I'm if I'm debating with a an atheist and I I recognize that he's reasonable and he has good reasons and stuff like that, um, that's that's one thing for me to say. Well, you know, I have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, so that's different. But then, say I'm I'm start debating with Methodist or uh, a Lutheran <laughs> on infant baptism, and I think that they're reasonable and they have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Now we're we're both again epistemic peers, but we're disagreeing, and so should you know should i just let go of that belief uh or is that even something i can do that's another aspect to mm -hmm. it too right if you're if you believe i i say this in almost all my episodes because it's it's really fun to say epi epi uh i just lost it um <laughs> doxastic volunteerist like are you is that even something that's kind of a planning move like what am i supposed to doubt my belief now i'm supposed to let go of my am i even able to do that so that's i think another aspect but then something I think Feldman brings up is the case of two detectives who are, uh, they both have the same evidence for a crime and they are disagreeing over which person to prosecute. One says prosecute person A, the other says prosecute person B. And so now you have someone's life on the line. And should you withhold judgment there? And and maybe this gets back to your distinction that you're working on for your, for your uh, dissertation, that maybe you can believe it, but you shouldn't act on it. I wonder if, if that's at play. So so maybe the huh. detective can believe this guy did it, but if there's pure disagreement, maybe he shouldn't, maybe he should withhold prosecution or something like that or, or giving yeah. his evidence to the prosecutor. I had not thought of that particular application from some of the stuff I'm working on. So that's really interesting. Um, I guess my, my gut reaction to this is that... Um, and so far as you're moved by these peer disagreement cases, mm -hmm. the intuition you're having is that it wouldn't be right to believe the thing in question, not yeah. just not to act on it. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I, guess, I guess that's really all I have to say because I've not really thought about how some of what yeah. I'm working on really apply yeah. to this. So it goes deeper. It goes right into your into your your justification, into your mind, into your beliefs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the so, right. I think... I, I think it might be nice just to even like give labels though to the different views you might have towards this. So yeah. some people think that um, in a case of a peer disagreement, um, the right attitude is to, is to have a suspension of judgment. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were initially believing that P and then you disagree with the peer and you know this, um, you should now um, go agnostic about the issue. And that's what that's what Feldman takes, right? He he that is, yeah, that is came what in Feldman as kind takes. of an atheist, and then which is so interesting. Like you said, he wrote in this book. Uh, I think it's called uh, Philosophers Without God or, or some something like that. Mm -hmm. And 
he's in there. Everyone else is railing against God or belief in God. And he's saying, I came in as an atheist, but as I ponder on disagreement, I'm saying I have to withhold judgment because there's peers who disagree with me on this, which is really interesting that he, he put it at him. He, he let it apply to his own beliefs. Yeah. You got to admire the critical self-reflection and consistency yeah. on his part. Yeah. Um, so that's one group. Yeah. Let's, and like traditionally they're called conciliationists, right? Okay. Yeah. That's um, nice. Yeah, right. It's a, it sounds like a, it's a very virtuous label, right? Yeah. I'm being conciliatory, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm agreeable. Um, and, uh, or, or alternatively, you can call them conformists. Um, that's what my, mm-hmm. uh, one of my professors, Jennifer Lackey, and some of her work, she calls them the conformists. Um, and this contrasts with the nonconformists, or if you want to go with the jargon that was introduced alongside um, the conciliationist label, the steadfasters. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the people who say, no, um, when you disagree with an epistemic peer, um, the disagreement itself isn't really a reason to change your, change your beliefs. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was suggesting earlier that there's this, there's, there are some cases that seem to pull in favor of going um, conciliationist. And there are some mm. that pull in favor of going steadfaster. And I think what's wanting is something in between here. Um, but you, but you want it to be principled, right? Right. Um, and I should just add that it's not just a matter of like the, the interest in trying to have something more in between doesn't just stem from like the unseemly consequences we noted, right? Mm-hmm. Namely being really dogmatic or just being overly skeptical. Um, there, there's this added consideration that there really are cases that really seem to support the one view and cases that seem to support the other view. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in itself should lead us to think, well, actually maybe there is something more principled in between. Yeah. So we're, what we're missing is is uh, criteria or some some sort of principle to help kind of adjudicate between when we should withhold judgment and when we should be steadfasters. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, and I, so let me just share a case that seems to support the conciliationist view. This yeah. is by now a very familiar case to those people who've been reading this stuff. Um, it's the restaurant check case. Mm. So. You and I are equally good at math. We both know this about each other. We have a similar set of experiences along those lines. We go out to eat. We both try to do the ca- try to calculate what the what the tip is for the mm-hmm. bill. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You come up with forty five. I come up with forty three. Apparently, you and I had a great time spending a lot of money on food. But <laughs> um, I uh, we have this like we we do the calculation. We both know that we're equally competent with respect to the particular problem. Um, we have the same numbers in front of us. So in a sense, we seem to have the same evidence. We, um, we both did the calculation and I think the tip is, um, I forget who, I forget who, who said what in my example, but I'll, I'll just say this. Yeah. I say 43, you say 45. Okay. Um, yeah. Now it seems like the wrong thing to say, <laughs> to say that I should just be, I should just be steadfast with 43. Like, mm-hmm. like, Oh no, like P- Parker, Park- Parker's just crazy right now. It must be 43. <laughs> Um, likewise, the same applies to you. It just seems like you shouldn't be reasoning that way about the case. Um, so at least a case like this seems, seems to support, um, the conciliatory view or conciliatory verdict. Um, and the conciliatory verdict there would, would be to recalculate or to show each other the calculations, not necessarily say, well, sorry, sorry, ma'am. Uh, we disagree over the price. So we're going to withhold judgment on what to pay. Um, well, yeah, so um, people, it's, it's funny how when I talk to people about this sort of thing, or when I have in the past, 
I don't mean to make it sound like this is what I'm doing all the time, but, but <laughs> like, like, what, what I have, yeah, when I have talked to people about this, um, I sometimes get responses that just seem to totally sidestep the initial question I asked, mm. <laughs> or it's something like, well, what I would do is I would recalculate. I want to be like, yes, that sounds like a uh, great idea. I'm yeah. not asking you what you would do. Yeah. I'm asking you like, is your belief justified? Yeah. Um, at, That's good, at the time man. you discovered this disagreement. Yeah. Um, so agreed, you should recalculate. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to leave the restaurant. <laughs> I just did um, that. You're, you're saying I'm that person. When, yeah, when, when I, helped, I, I wasn't blaming you. I was blaming the other people. Yeah, um, that's good. When I, so, when I would teach, I, I would teach uh, in the undergrad here, and uh, I helped teach, co-teach an uh, intro to philosophy class. And my students would do that all the time, where, you know, we talk about uh, Kant and, and, you know, should you lie to Nazis about hiding Jews? And, and people, all the, all the really nice girls, super sharp, but they'd be like, you know what? I wouldn't lie. And I wouldn't tell them that there's Jews in my basement. It's like, that's really nice, but you're not, you're sidestepping. You're, you're not answering the question. And then it stinks to hear. <laughs> I just did that to you and you call me out. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The, you picked up the ligature, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, I, I think, I, I think that the, the restaurant case does support the conciliatory verdict at least. It seems okay. to be right. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. You might you might fuss about whether or not the conditions for peerhood are really satisfied. Do you actually have the same evidence? Like, did you have the same course of experience calculating the bill? Things you might ask right. questions like that, right? But right. Um, and we can return to whether or not that counts as uh, uh, a case of actual peer disagreement. And I have some thoughts about that. But let me just real quick just describe a case that seems to support the steadfast view. Yeah, please. And it might actually raise the same question I just asked about the previous one. Okay. Um, but if, if you're, um, this, this is a case as far as I know originates with uh, one of my advisors. Um, if you're just eating dinner with a friend and um, you, you take yourself to be just having dinner with like two other people. Um, and let's just give, let's just give like your friend the name. Hank and your other friend, Charlie, no, the name Charlie, um, you're eating. And then you just say to Hank, Oh, sorry. You, you say, Charlie, can you pass me the wine? And then Hank's like, Charlie's not here. Um, mm. and you, you, I mean, you, you, you think you're seeing, um, Charlie and Hank's like, Charlie's not here. Um, and you both know that you're equally competent with respect to the question, uh, like of whether, Charlie is present. Yeah. Um, you're both equally good. Uh, you're both equally reliable and just uh, coming to conclusions about perceptual matters. Um, hmm. And there's a sense again, in which you have the same evidence, you're in the same room, you're looking in the same direction, all that stuff. Right. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't seem right to say that just because um, Hank disagrees with you, you ought to now because you, you ought to now suspend judgment about whether or not Charlie's there. Yeah. Um, to bolster this point, you can imagine that like Charlie's parents come to the door, you open the door and they're like, is Charlie here? And you're just like, like, well, he seems to be, but I don't know because Hank disagrees with me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, um, so, so Hank is not being appeared to Charlie Lee, but you are. And or so, as far as I can tell, right. Cause he, he, here's what I know about me. It looks for the world. Like Charlie here. Yeah. Um, oh, Hank, yeah. Hank's, Hank just disagrees. And Hank is otherwise like somebody who I regard to be equally competent yeah. at assessing perceptual matters. Um, and he seems to have the same evidence as me. So um, that's, that's, uh, that's a case that would support the steadfast view, it seems to me. 
Um, but again, I think a similar question shows up here as it did with the previous cases. Yeah. Are the conditions for peerhood actually satisfied? Because mm -hmm. as you were just noting, like it, I, I feel, I mean, like in the example, like you're, it seems like you're having a Charlie appearance, right? Yeah. Um, and um, at least to be charitable, Hank, Hank isn't, um, right? You don't want to say he is, but he's somehow just going insane. Right, um, right. Because then he wouldn't be a peer, yeah. right? Because if he's not in his right state of mind, then you're not peers at this moment. Is that right? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I, th I think something like this is exactly what we should start wondering um, okay. about these cases. And so what I think this underscores, though, is the is the significance of getting clear on what exactly an epistemic peer should be for the mm. purposes of reflecting on the epistemological significance of disagreement. Yeah. Um, because one response to both the restaurant case and this case I just shared with you about Hank and Charlie um, is to say, um, actually, no, the conditions for peerhood aren't satisfied. You don't have the same evidence in these cases, right? In the restaurant case, you didn't undergo the same course of experience calculating the bill. In the, Hank and, in the perceptual case, um, there's there's an obvious evidential uh, difference. Um, you're having an appearance as of Charlie and Hank isn't. Um, um, but but then one might just try to stipulate, right? And say, no, they really do have all the same appearances. Yeah. Um, they, but at that point, there's this concern that the case is just so idealized that it's removed from the very cases that kind of got us interested in disagreement in the first place. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Because what, what kind of explanation are you are you able to give that, Charlie is or isn't there and that they have the same evidence like there just has to be something to just stipulate that it's it's hard to think through because what why don't they both see them then it's hard to know what we're imagining right yeah um it's it's it, it, it's so idealized I mean so I mean there's the one question is this even like possible um sure I, I, I think it's too strong to say it's impossible but you might think it's so idealized that it's removed from the kinds of uh, cases that inspired the discussion about disagreement in the first place. Well, so Nate, what if we had a mirror between, uh, I forgot everyone's name and stuff, but let's just go with you and me. But so I see Charlie and, and I'm sitting across the table from you and Charlie, but there's a mirror here that I can't see. And so when you look over at Charlie, it sends you that way or whatever. And, and you just, whatever it is, what special kind of mirror we can stipulate. So you don't see him. Um, and I don't know that you can't see him are we still peers or does that external factor that I can't see and you can't see, uh, but, but the narrator can see, does that change the epistemic uh, peerhood discussion? Like maybe you're not because you're not in a position to see him. Um, so wait, um, you're in, in the example, maybe I missed it in the example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, re the relevant peers acknowledge each other as such. Correct. Yes. Because I'm not aware of the mirror and you're not aware of the mirror, but we also acknowledge each other's epistemic peers. I can see Charlie because the mirror is slanted so that I can see him. You can't because of the mirror, but you know, whatever, it's too thin or something. And I just haven't recognized that there's a mirror there. And so I'm like, Hey, Charlie pass the ketchup. And you're like, dude, what are you talking about? Charlie's not here. What are you talking about? Um, would we still be epistemic peers or does that, that condition adding in and like uh, explicating the difference between us. Does that change the conversation such that we're not peers for like, I don't know, I guess the, the narrator or, or those considering the case. I, I mean, I, on the way I, on the way I think about what it is to have 
reasons to believe or evidence to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, so this is kind of an, a theoretically informed reflection. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say you're not peers okay. um, because you don't, you don't have the same evidence. You don't have the same reasons, right? Like one has, one's having a charterly experience and one isn't in your example, it's by virtue of the mirror and, or something like that. And mm-hmm. it's also by virtue of the mirror that the one person isn't having a charterly experience. Um, I think, I think that, um, so they're, so, so they wouldn't be epistemic peers on the way I think about having evidence. And admittedly, it's a theoretically informed way of thinking about it. Um, but I think what this does though, um, just to go back to a previous point is I think what this shows is that cases of epistemic peerhood, um, at least the kinds that kind of push that like give us like, um, an interest in like reflecting on disagreement. They're not going to be as idealized as I think they would need to be if you were to think about evidence in the way that I do. And I think that, that many epistemologists do, um, Okay, yeah, that's helpful. So, the the peer aspect is is so interesting to me, and it seems like maybe, well, I think peerhood is probably case relative. So, like, we, I'm always nervous to call myself a peer with anyone because I think everyone's so much smarter than me. But like, if someone's a peer with me and we're doing the math, and I'm not as good at math, like we're not peers in that situation when we're doing we're calculating the total, but then we, we go over to talk about turtles and it's like, well, (laughs) even though we're both intellectually peers, like you don't know about turtles like I do. So I don't want to, I don't want to kick the can down the road or anything. Cause it, I think it'd be easy to just be like, well, then, you know, peerhood is just something, not something we can get clear on. Uh, It seems like it is something we can get clear on. Right. But we just maybe, need more conditions for that mediating position between the steadfasters and the uh, conciliationist conciliatory mm-hmm. view. Is anyone doing that? Like that, this stinks because I'm going to not be able to sleep tonight. Because <laughs> so, I'm... yeah. So, um, well, to, to your question about, um, can you be peers and, uh, with respect to some things, but not others? Yeah. Um, yes, that sounds right. Okay. Um, at least, at least in an ordinary sense of what it would be to be like a peer with somebody about some subject matter. Um, like two biologists talking can be um, epistemic peers about some issue in biology, but um, when the biologist is having some disagreement with a theologian um, mm. and it's about some matter of theology, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the theologian has the upper hand here in terms of um, epistemic competence. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, like you can be, you can be, you can be, um, peers in one domain, you, you, you can be someone's epistemic peer in one domain, but not be an epistemic peer with that person with respect to some other domain. Um, can, can I, can I, we stop right, right there and keep going. So, um, that I, again, there's like this tendency in me to want to just blow up the, uh, peerhood aspect and just be like, no, it's, it's impossible because, uh, we can just go with a, like a relativistic principle that no one is me. And so no one could be my peer with, uh, in the same way. So like, I don't want to do that, but I do want to do it. But the reason I am finding that tempting is because even if I think about a biologist who they both studied under the same, uh, you know, doctor father or whatever, like they both had the same, uh, committee. They both worked on the same prod, uh, two different dissertations or whatever, but in the same field, one of them is going to know more or they're going to have different experiences than the other. And part of me wants to just go, I don't, 
think that they're epistemic peers at all. Like, I guess you could idealize it. Uh, you, you need to idealize it for the for philosophy and not get bogged down by the fact that they have different experiences than each other. Yeah. It, well, I mean, I want to I want to just add something to what I said earlier. So earlier yeah. I was saying once you embark on idealizing in the relevant in the envisioned manner, I think the case of disagreement you're imagining is a very very unlikely one. Okay. Um, and b- because it is so idealized. Yeah. Um, and it is different from the kinds of disagreements that I think inspire um, the conversation in the first place, like political mm. disagreement, religious disagreement. Um, okay. But that's not to say that you couldn't answer the question, like, well, what about idealized disagreement, right? Like, it's not yeah. like there's just no answer to the question, what should uh, people do when they disagree in these idealized cases? Yeah. I was just kind of making what you might call like a dialectical point. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe if we... Maybe if we go to like voting, so like Tom and Steve, like Tom thinks that you should vote for Trump uh, to make the country better. And Steve thinks you should vote for Biden to make the country better. And they're epistemic peers. They both uh, took political science together and they both read the all the same books. Uh, Maybe that's idealizing too much, but they are epistemic peers and they they both think different candidates will make the country better. And this literature, well, Feldman's response, the uh, the conciliatory view is like, don't vote at all. Well, wait, again, again, it's not a claim about what to do. Or uh, how to, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. But if you are withholding judgment on it, then so so then you're withholding judgment. I don't know if because I think I don't want to say me, but whatever. I think uh, Ron Paul will make the country better. And someone else thinks Trump and someone else thinks Biden. Uh, all three of us, if we're peers and we've shared our evidence with each other on the conciliatory view, we should withhold our belief that our candidate will make the country better. And if we are withholding that belief, I would say that means you don't act on it either. Because to act on it as yeah. if, you know, wouldn't that require belief? Um, it might it might require belief, but it might not require epistemically justified belief. I think that's going to be the, oh. that's the interesting question to figure out here. So right? you can still believe, like, but you're not justified. Yeah, um, I well, I mean that that's right. I mean, like, presumably, I have some beliefs that aren't justified. Right. Well, um, I mean, I mean, right? because of pure disagreement, you lost your justification. Yeah. So it, it could like so. Just going back to Feldman. Feldman actually says something like this at the very end of the paper, right? Mm-hmm. He says. Um, even though we suspend, I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing here, but like, even though we suspend judgment, uh, have to suspend judgment about these things, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue going, like going around, like championing views and like defending them and arguing for them. Cause that might just be the best way to make progress. Um, so he, he doesn't, he doesn't want to like, he doesn't want to say that just because you're suspending judgment on these cases, um, that, that totally removes you from like the practical realm. So, and so there's room then for a view. I mean, not, not just Feldman's view, but like on the conciliationist view, there's room for thinking that, well, yeah, you can still like behave in certain ways because it's prudent or maybe even moral. Um, yeah, but doesn't that mean you're acting without good reason to act? Like, it's like, just seems like pragmatism. Like you're, I, I got to do something, even though I, because I read Feldman, I don't have a good reason for it anymore. Because I, I, 
shouldn't have met my peer, but I did. And we shared our evidence. And now I don't have a good reason for this uh, belief, but I'm going to go act on the belief anyways. Doesn't that seem like something something's wrong with that? Well, I mean, it just depends on the case. Um, okay. In some cases, that seems wrong. I would, I would agree with you. But, but I think uncontroversially, there are going to be cases where that's totally fine. What about um, the voting the voting case? If three of us disagree, libertarian, uh, liberal, and conservative, and we've shared our evidence and we're uh, epistemic peers concerning political views, we share our evidence with each other, we're epistemic peers. On the conciliatory view, we would probably say like, yo, I can't, I'm not justified in my belief that my candidate is better than yours, but I'm going to vote for my candidate. Yeah, I mean, that sounds... That- that sounds like um, at, at, le- at least described like that. <laughs> that seems problematic to me. Okay. Um, but I, <laughs> this this is just like speculating on like the psychology of like somebody who right. um, feels strongly about like the election or, or whatever political issue, right? Typically people who feel strongly in that way don't regard those who disagree as epistemic peers. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's, but when, when, we, when we just like, and that we just stipulate that that's how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how the person regards the person. I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm inclined to. And we go with a conciliatory verdict, right? Yeah. That in such cases you ought to suspend judgment. Yeah. Um, it does seem weird to me that somebody would um, suspend judgment about who the best candidate is, but be like, "Well, I'm still going to vote for them," right. and and we go vote for them. But I, just the more general point about how about whether or not like you could act as though P. Um, even though you don't believe that P that actually, I think uncontroversially there are cases like that. Sometimes when you max, sometimes like in order to maximize your expected utility, you might just need to um, act on the assumption that a certain proposition is true, where it's the the proposition with the highest probability, but that a proposition has like the highest probability um, doesn't require that it's more probable than not. Right. It just might be, um, the um, most probable among your options. Yeah, so, so you, got, you got options, and option one has like 0.01, option two has 0.03, and so yeah. it's nowhere near, you know, halfway, but it's better than option one. You have to, yes, for some reason, you have to bet on a horse at the, at the, at the race, yeah. right? Yeah, that's and good. And like the horse with the greatest chance of winning has a 40% chance of winning. Yes. Um, um, I don't believe the horse is going to win. Um, Right. It would be it would be it would certainly be wrong to say that I know that that horse is going to win, but I'm still going to bet on the horse. Um, So that's a case where I don't believe that the horse will win, but I I can I would still act as though the horse is going to win for the purposes of like betting and stuff like that. Okay. yeah, that's interesting. This is so interesting. I love this. Uh, Sorry to to bring you to something that uh, you did so good. So I'm not even going to apologize, man. This is so (laughs) helpful for what I've noticed is that in coming to seminary and studying some more philosophy and studying some theology, uh, a lot of what I do now with people is trying to show people that they are epistemic peers with others, not in order to get them to withhold belief, but at least to see where they're coming from and not be as dogmatic on their beliefs, which is so funny because that was me. And I'm still dogmatic on some stuff, but I've just found that we, in, in disagreement, a lot of people are closer to peers than they think. And it's really easy for them to go, Oh, they just believe that because of this. And you go, well, what if they believed it because of this? Right. And what if they, and so putting some more, you know, reasons on people's beliefs and, uh, and lowering that, 
like scorn that comes from you disagree with me because it, it, it you can only disagree with me if you're evil. And I see that today. I see it on Facebook all day today. You believe this because you want to destroy our country or because you love murdering babies or because you this. And uh, I think a little bit of disagreement literature could go a long way. Yeah, maybe that's right. Um, it certainly has um, led to one person to be a little bit more intellectually humble, um, Feldman, who we talked about. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe it can have that effect more broadly. Yeah, um, just don't go – you just can't go full bore. Otherwise – you will be walking around trying to hide from epistemic peers because then they're going to erode all your justification for your beliefs or whatever. But yeah. yeah. Well, again, depending on what you think the right view of disagreement of the epistemological significance of disagreement is, um, yeah. I'm kind of buying here for like some kind of middle ground view um, yeah. or some view that says something like, you know, it's kind of situational. Yeah. Um, and a few different people have tried to work out that project. So, yeah. Um, yeah. dude, that's helpful. That's really helpful. Well, uh, Nate, thanks for so much for for introducing us to uh, your different takes on epistemology and uh, your your laying out disagreement literature for us. It's been so awesome. Uh, love to have you on again. So Nate is uh, he's busy. Uh, dude, what do you call it? You're you're a philosophy teacher. You're an adjunct. Like what? what, um, what well, I'm a grad student at Northwestern, um, and that means that I'm not uh, well. That in itself doesn't mean this, but um, a part of that is that so I don't just study and actually work on the dissertation. I also have some teaching responsibilities, and this quarter I'm I'm TAing for philosophy of language, so that keeps me busy having to grade papers, meet with students, and lead yeah. discussion sections. Yeah. <laughs> so so when he's not doing that, hopefully we can sneak him back on for a couple uh, for a couple topics in, in the philosophy of language, something he's already teaching to his people. He can come teach us, uh, Lord <laughs> willing. So that would be fantastic if you would come back on, man. If you can find time for sure. I, I'm sure I can. It's a pandemic. I'm home all the time. So <laughs> I think, I think I can do it. One of the good things about that. One of the few, few good things. All right. Well, this has been uh, Parker's Pensies. Uh, we'll talk about this some more. I'm sure in the future, uh, as always, all glory to God.